We're going to begin this week's podcast with a Ukrainian lullaby. This is a song called Oi Mi Satchu. I'll uh, translate loosely. There's obviously different ways to translate, but I'll, uh, I'll do my best. The refrain is, oh, moon, sweet moon, silver face protector. What are you watching over tonight? And the moon says, I'm protecting the quiet night, the plains and the meadows, the forest and the river, and homes in the village. And oh, moon, who sleeps in those homes? Children sleep there as dreams kiss their face and hope fills their dreams. Oh, moon, what are those dreams about? They're about their homeland, their eternal homeland, and about the future of Ukraine. That's what they're dreaming about. Oh, moon, will their dreams come true? Those children will grow up and they will help Ukraine and their dreams will come true. I've been hearing this song and singing it since I was two years old. On today's program, Life During Wartime, as Ukraine's fight unites a humanitarian response across the globe. We've been remarkably successful in getting in medical supplies, flak jackets, helmets, night vision, things that doctors in Lviv and Kiev have said they need. But right there at the border, you have dozens of staff or volunteers who are at tents uh, where there's hot food, where there's tea and coffee, and then information, but also a Wi-Fi connection so people can communicate back with their family members. We made it. This is where we are. How are you? Just being able to communicate is a lifeline at a time when you're separated from your network and your family members. Caring for the whole person during wartime. Please stay with us. This is the Hear Me Now podcast, coming to you from the Providence Institute for Human Caring. I'm Sean Collins. Thanks for listening. March 24th, 2022. I've been sitting here with my laptop for more than two hours, trying to find a way to encapsulate the past month in a few paragraphs. And of course, I can't. You could talk about casualties or enumerate the war crimes or try to count the number of civilians who have been targeted. Tallying the refugees would be another way to put into words what has happened in Ukraine since Russian forces illegally crossed the border and began this war. Or were they simply continuing a war that began in 2014? That's for another podcaster to decide. Today, we're going to try to look at the Russian war on Ukraine 
through the lens of the whole person and how every aspect of an individual's life is thrown out of balance and injured in warfare. Their physical well-being, their mental health, their connections with communities that matter to them, family and church and neighbors and co-workers. Violence is being visited on the people of Ukraine indiscriminately as civilian targets are struck by artillery and missile fire, leaving whole buildings in rubble and flames, killing men, women, children, the elderly, the disabled, without regard. Clearly marked places of refuge have been targeted. Hospitals, theaters, shelters, these places have been targeted. They haven't been struck as some form of collateral damage. Russian forces are targeting civilians in a tactic that any rational person would have to say is terrorism. In September 1939, as another madman invaded his neighbor, the English poet W.H. Auden sat in a dive bar on 52nd Street in Manhattan, uncertain and afraid, he wrote, and wondered where the hell the world was headed. The terror and evil that followed Hitler's invasion of Poland is well known to all of us. It's well known to Vladimir Putin. And so we can be forgiven our own uncertainty and fear in the spring of 2022. Where the hell is this war headed? Auden sat at that bar and wrote one of the 20th century's great poems. It ends, Defenseless under the night, our world in stupor lies, yet dotted everywhere, ironic points of light flash out wherever the just exchange their messages. May I, composed like them of eros and of dust, beleaguered by the same negation and despair, show an affirming flame. On today's program, conversations with people reaching out to others in wartime, making connections, showing that affirming flame. First up, Ina Pashniak. She's a digital marketing manager for the Providence Innovation Group. She lives in San Francisco now, but she was born in Ukraine. She's been texting and calling her friends there throughout the war, among them Alexei Kirka. He works in communications in the British Embassy in Ukraine. We asked Ina and Alexei if we could listen in on one of their conversations this week. Hello. How are you? Well, it's a very tricky question these days, uh, but I'm all right. Thank you. So far, so good. And my family is okay. We are now in a western part of, of the country, in my hometown, which I believe, Ina, you're also from here. So I moved out of Kiev just a day before the invasion started. So kind of jumped on the last train, so, as it were. Um, but I normally live and work in Kiev. I've lived there for 17 years. I paid my mortgage just last year. I was paying it for 15 years. Uh, so leaving uh, all of that behind now is really heartbreaking. Uh, but I really hope I'll be back uh, one day. Um, and the sooner the better, of course. I'm very glad that you are safe, uh, uh, more or less. Yeah. I pray that um, everything uh, will be will remain safe. 
Yeah, let's hope. But I have to say Chernipsi has changed uh, very much over the last three weeks. Uh, uh, the, I have never seen so many people in this little town before because uh, a lot of uh, internally displaced uh, people are coming here every day. I was just walking today, um, um, running around to buy some medicines, and I saw um, various humanitarian hubs and uh, those internally displaced people uh, like lining for help or accommodation or some uh, food uh, and it's it's really heartbreaking i think the the, the city is managing quite well um, is welcoming more people some people are staying here others are uh, um, moving on uh, to uh, Romania or Poland, uh, into Europe. Uh, but there's quite a lot of people who stayed here. I was in the first week, I was getting a lot of calls from uh, my friends in other regions asking for accommodation, uh, where to stay. So I I've been like on the phone 24/7 trying to find some options for them but now it's uh, it's a bit uh, tricky because the demand keeps uh, going up but the as as you know our our city is uh, pretty small um but I think the local authorities are managing quite well uh, people in the villages uh, in the countryside are also opening their doors to uh to to our compatriots from other regions so it is amazing to see this response on the ground um, in in here, in, in, in these regions in Ukraine, but also uh, when I see those stories from Poland, Romania, uh, Czech Republic, uh, uh, other countries, Germany, how people-to-people -people connections work and how people are trying to help. It's, it's really inspiring and I'm so grateful uh, to all of them, um, when it's it's uh, it's it's in in these dark times that we are going through, this is like a light of hope uh, for for the humanity, I would say, because um, yeah. And uh, do you have like uh, any like air like alarm siren uh, during the night? Yes. How's your your mom doing? Like, is she very wor worried? And yeah. your family? Yeah, so we do have uh, air raid sirens. Uh, uh, just last night, there was a a, a long one, uh, and uh, I think there are sometimes uh, sirens for the whole of the country. You never know where they will strike, and so they uh, set off those um, sirens. So yeah, it was uh, at the beginning quite scary. Uh, to hear those sirens, like we are not used to uh, those sounds and also to curfew, uh, which starts at 10 uh, a.m. here in, 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 in Chernivtsi. In other regions, uh, uh, curfew times might be slightly different, uh, but um, it's a new reality that we live uh, under. You asked about my mom, mm -hmm. so just for, 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 for your colleagues, my mom is disabled, uh, so I, I now take care of her. Uh, our sitter is not available at the moment, so I have to to take care of her um, 24-7. Um, she, she's managing quite well, I have to say, uh, except for her blood pressure, which jumps <laughs> from time to time. But uh, uh, I think I try to keep her away from, from the news, uh, 
it's uh, it's uh, um, you know it's 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 stressful. It's quite stressful. Um, uh, but uh, I think so far she's managing well, uh, and I'm doing my best to to really be with with her, be be here for her, um, and and she she's really happy to be reunited with me even under under this uh, uh, very mm. challenging circumstance. Of course, I I I I can uh, totally relate, and uh, uh, like our relatives are the closest uh, people to, uh, for us, and I'm I'm very glad that you are uh, together and uh, that you are taking care of her. Uh, and I have heard that uh, a lot of um, uh, volunteers are also working. Um, uh, and uh, they are providing uh, medical assistance and uh, also like uh, uh, money for people who are uh, fleeing the country. Um, uh, and uh, uh, it seems to me like the whole world uh, is united and uh, they are trying to help us. Uh, but still, um, I, uh, I was watching one uh, some of your videos and uh, they were so shocking. Like, for, uh, for example, you just... Uh, uh, recently um, posted uh, how the uh, how people who were queuing up uh, to buy some bread in Chernihiv that they were uh, shot by Russians and they were civilians. Yes. Uh, and yeah, and I, I just can't believe it uh, how uh, you know like soldiers could just uh, go and um, uh, shoot like several people who were not doing any harm to them yes, really yes. breaks my heart what is uh, happening uh, to Ukraine. So this is, Ina, you touched upon some really important points here. And I think it's really important for people out there to understand the nature of this war uh, by Russia against Ukraine, uh, because, uh, uh, you know, Russia declared, like their president Putin declared that they, we are going to target military op op objects and that we are going to demilitarize uh, uh, Ukraine and denazify Ukraine uh, and sort of, uh, you know, their narrative. But in fact, what's been happening and what is still happening is that they are targeting civilian population. Um, they are uh, like just yesterday, they bombed a, uh, a drama theater turned into like bomb shelter in Mariupol. Uh, a city in uh, in um, uh, eastern Ukraine. So that uh, theater was bombed, targeted, despite the fact that there were huge letters written on the uh, sidewalk uh, on both sides of the theater saying children. Mm -hmm. So it can be even visible from the air that this is where children, like, they 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 plead they implore uh, whoever makes those uh, uh, drops those bombs to not to bomb this particular area, but uh, that doesn't stop them. They are hitting civilians. They are uh, killing them on the spot if they see, and uh, it's just this the most barbaric and brutal uh, war uh, that I can remember. Uh, you know, Putin is just. Uh, sending those young uh, soldiers uh, who are not even trained in any warfare and they're just like cannon fodder here. They are also killed by the Ukrainian army and the Ukrainian resistance and uh, they then go and target civilians uh, everywhere they can find. And it's, uh, it's, it's, it's astonishing. It's just it, it completely beyond me how they can do that. 
um, while while lying to the whole world that they keep uh, hitting uh, uh, military bases. Yes, I absolutely agree with you, Alexei, and um, I also uh, like understand, like everybody understands that this man has his hands in blood and he has um, uh, he's like an aggressor. He has attacked a lot of countries before. Moldova, Georgia. Yes, yeah. exactly. And I would like to thank you so much for uh, uh, like talking to you. I'm, uh, um, of course, I'm like very uh, worried about you and your mom. Uh, and I'm, yeah, yeah, I'm very, uh, I'm praying for uh, for your safety. Thank you. Thank you so much for share, sharing me uh, all the political situation because you know much more about it. Really grateful. Thank you, Ina. Thank you for reaching out. I'm, I'm really, really uh, glad to hear you and do say hello from Ukraine to your uh, colleagues and friends uh, in the U.S. Uh, and we know that the, that the people of the United States are really helping us right now. So we can't really win this war without this support. And we really count on you guys out there. And thank you so much again. Thank you, Alexei. And God bless you. God bless you too and uh, stay safe and keep in touch it was really nice thank you let's keep in touch yes okay. bye 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 sean thank you Alexi. that's ina pashniak digital marketing manager for the providence innovation group in san francisco speaking with her friend alexi kirka internally displaced from his job in kiev where he works for the british embassy in ukraine Still to come on the program, we'll hear from someone who's just spent time at the Ukraine-Moldova border and who tells us about the importance of coffee, hot food, and Wi-Fi. Caroline Brennan of Catholic Relief Services is coming up. And I catch up with an old friend who literally wrote the book on Putin. Anne Gerrels, veteran foreign correspondent for NPR News, will be here. Media's role in this war is really interesting. I've heard it called the TikTok and Telegram War. And to contrast the approaches to social media comparing Vladimir Putin's crackdowns with Volodymyr Zelensky's embrace of democratized information sharing is an object lesson in the pen being mightier than the sword, if you allow the pen here to be a smartphone. Grassroots reporting from the front lines has been a vital link for people of Ukrainian heritage living abroad. Orest Holubek is the Executive Vice President and Chief Communication and Community Engagement Officer for Providence. You heard him at the beginning of the program, translating the lullaby being sung by his two nieces. Orest's grandparents and parents were refugees from Ukraine during the Second World War, and like so many Ukrainian-Americans, he was raised in the warm embrace of a tightly knit community. Yep, mom and dad are in Cleveland, um, and I grew up in Cleveland. They both uh, left Ukraine when they were kids. They, they were in a, a village outside of Lviv called Konyushkiv. And the story, as I've heard it many times, is that the Russians came in and set up camp uh, right next to their house or in their house. And my grandfather was a cantor in the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church. Uh, so he uh, had a list ostensibly of all the literate people in the village and in the surrounding villages. And uh, the Russian commander asked him for that list of people. And he knew what would happen if he handed over the list or if he didn't hand over the list. And uh, as he was discerning that, 
uh, in the evening, uh, a Russian soldier who he'd gotten to know um, woke him up and said the, the woods are deep and dark. So he escaped with his family and they made it across the border. Uh, and my uh, grandmother was holding my mom, who was three years old at the time. Uh, her older sister, my aunt Ola, was uh, 13. And um, they encountered the German army at gunpoint. And my grandmother looked at the German soldiers and said, Rus nicht gut, which is pretty easy to translate. And um, the uh, soldiers put down their arms, held them across the river, and then uh, they ended up in displaced persons camps. And my grandfather, again, who was a cantor, was sponsored at a church in Ramey, Pennsylvania, so that needed a, a cantor. So um, the family made its way over. Uh, we'll be hearing many of these stories of refugees, I think, in the coming uh, weeks and mm -hmm. months and years. But um, they they came over. Um, similar story for many of my friends and on my father's side of the family. They uh, came here and in immediately worked on preserving the language and culture of, of Ukraine, of their homeland, because they didn't know if it would continue to exist mm -hmm. uh, in Ukraine, where the Russians and Germans were fighting for it. So they, uh, my parents met at a Ukrainian scouting camp, and um, my father was in Cleveland, and my mother was in Ramey, but they ended up meeting in, in Buffalo at a camp. And um, as fate would have it, I met my wife, who's also first-generation Ukrainian, Tyla, in, in, in our Ukrainian scouting uh, camp through that organization as well. So that, that, that's been, being Ukrainian has been uh, a central part of my life uh, in my existence and grew up in, in Cleveland in a really in a Ukrainian bubble. I spoke Ukrainian uh, exclusively until I was about six years old. We like to joke um, about this, but I think it might be true. Uh, but I learned English watching Sesame Street at, at again at about six years old. And um, so we had, you know, Ukrainian soccer team, Ukrainian dance troupe, Ukrainian scouting organization that I talked about before our Ukrainian church. We were there every week. Um, Ukrainian school on Saturdays. So as my friends were watching cartoons, I was in five hours of uh, Ukrainian school, <laughs> and uh, and it really shaped um, who I am and, and who we are as first generation Ukrainians, and also shapes our response to what we're seeing in this war and how we're trying to help. And what has that response been? Well, one one has been staying informed. Um, and the war started eight years ago, and um, it's obviously escalated um, exponentially in the last three, three four weeks. Uh, but but staying informed on what's happening on the ground, mm -hmm. uh, praying uh, is key, and then supporting in any way we can. So sending money. I have friends who um, uh, who have flown to Poland and are helping refugees on the border. Um, I have friends who are thinking about flying and and just really thinking about every way possible to help and using the gifts that we have most effectively. So there's a irrational desire or irrational urge that some of us have, including me at times, to fly over there and fight, but that is probably not the best use of my resources in this in this. But um, so doing everything I can short of that to uh, to help. Tell me about your parents. How often are you in contact with them in Cleveland and are are they in contact at all with people in Ukraine? They are. They are. They're uh, very involved in their church uh, in, in Cleveland. And um, there, there are a lot of Ukrainian Americans in Cleveland. And um, we're uh, 
I, I speak Ukrainian with my parents exclusively. And sometimes when I talk about work there, I have a, a vocabulary gap. Uh, so they, they'll allow me <laughs> to slip in the occasional <laughs> English, but um, they're uh, very in touch with their family uh, in Western Ukraine. Can you share anything with us, what they're, what they're hearing or? I can, I can. They're um, our first cousin, once removed, I think that's right, is um, volunteering in the territorial uh, guard, and uh, the, fa- the family staying staying there, and um, again doing what they can to to shelter, stay safe, and and um, they're in western Ukraine. And just recently, you've probably heard that uh, there have been two incidents of bombings around the around Lviv, and mm-hmm. they, they live right outside of Lviv. Let's switch gears for just a second, and let's talk about uh, Providence in the healthcare system's role in helping to get humanitarian relief to people who need it. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Absolutely. And Providence has a, a deep history in international ministry in helping in uh, disaster relief, crisis relief, and in um, refugee assistance. So uh, we started immediately with a, a fundraising uh, opportunity for um, our caregivers to donate. Because a lot of, lot of employees, what we call our employees caregivers, uh, wanted to help uh, and didn't know how. We have a, a, a deeply trusted partner in Catholic Relief Services, so we immediately set up a link, uh, and to date have raised one hundred sixty-three thousand dollars through our caregivers. We're, we're matching that uh, with Providence funds as well. So that's a an amazing start and a, a amazing show of generosity from uh, the caregivers at Providence. We're also working. Uh, with medical teams international and uh, shipping durable, durable medical goods and supplies, um, and again through a trusted partner, so that we know that those supplies will get to the right places to help uh, to help refugees. Um, and then we have plans in place um, in phases to help with direct refugee support, uh, especially as uh, the country starts accepting refugees here. We expect Washington State will take in quite a few. And Providence is headquartered in Washington State. Yes, yep. the state of Washington has the what I just uh, learned this the highest uh, influx of Ukrainians in the last uh, decade or so. Hmm. Um, so, uh, uh, getting prepared for assisting refugees that make their way into the United States as well, and there will be other activities. Orest, I'm really deeply grateful for you taking the time. I know this is not an easy conversation to have, and I I appreciate you being so honest and so forthright and so open and quite frankly, sharing that piece of music with us is incredibly powerful and I'm grateful for that. Thank you. Uh, This is another opportunity for me to to help and I appreciate you uh, taking the time and sharing the story. Orest Hollebeck is the Executive Vice President and Chief Communication and Community Engagement Officer for Providence. He mentioned partnering with Catholic Relief Services. Caroline Brennan is the Emergency Communications Director for CRS, and she joins us now. Hi, Ms. Brennan. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I understand that you've just returned from the Ukraine-Moldova border, and I want to ask you about what you saw there. But first, can we talk a little bit about logistics? How is Catholic Relief Services managing to get aid to Ukrainians who have remained inside the country? Well, it is uh, challenging, as you can imagine, because um, the safety of certain corridors to um, reach people changes by the day based on where the fighting is taking place. 
um, and the security risks of staff and volunteers inside Ukraine. And But they are operating, which is remarkable. Our Ukrainian colleagues um, are operating. We have 65 offices across the Ukraine, um, only two of which are closed due to security concerns. And um, basically, like so many um, of our partners across the region, just adapting the shelters they had for other purposes before this crisis to meet the needs of people now. And so um, providing safe shelter in parishes and people's homes and these centers that were pre previously providing education or other social services support, um, now providing safe refuge, providing warmth in the form of blankets and food and care and counseling. and. And uh, the staff are able to provide that holistic support in terms of information about services available, that, that counseling and um, psychological support that is so critical at this time. And then in terms of the supplies, it's really been a partner or family effort um, across our Caritas um, community across the region. So CRS, Catholic Relief Services, is part of this broader federation called Caritas. We're the Caritas mm -hmm. for the U.S. And so our partners in Caritas Poland and Caritas Moldova, where I've just spent the past few weeks, Caritas Romania, we're sending pipelines of goods to our partners in Caritas Ukraine, have sent 500 trucks from Caritas Poland alone to Caritas Ukraine and trucks of supplies, of bedding, of materials, of hygiene supplies loaded up. Um, on the Poland side of the border and sending into our partners uh, because those needs are so critical. And so it's a community effort across the region, but also heroic effort by our, our team members and our partners who are not only responding, but living through it. It's very personal. You mentioned providing non-standard places of safety. It's, it's hard to imagine many places feeling truly safe when civilians are being targeted. Right, because if we think about what a home means to us in our homes, it's more than the roof and the walls that provide that physical structure, but it's your space and your place to have privacy, to be with the people you love most in this world, to be able to have difficult conversations, to be able to grieve, to be able to pull yourself together. And so without that space, you're dealing with these unimaginable issues, this true heartbreak and despair in a place where you may not have that privacy. And for so many Ukrainians who have crossed the border as refugees, nearly 90% are women and children because men of a certain age aren't allowed to leave Ukraine. Mm -hmm. So here they are in, the, in Moldova. I was on that other side of the border where just minutes before partners were having to say goodbye to each other and fathers were having to say goodbye to their children. And and you have women and children and elderly family members coming across just in utter grief and also disorientation, just trying to figure out where you are, where to go next. Who can you trust in this place um, for information or for transportation? Where can you go to feel safe? And for women, privacy is not just a matter of feeling comfortable to be able to navigate difficult issues, but it's also a matter of safety. And right. so finding those places of refuge and offering that type of support, both, both within Ukraine, but also in neighboring countries, is part of our response, that sort of providing refuge, both physical and emotional. How is Caritas helping people, refugees, move to the next step? Like 
um, to evacuate the border region and find a place, at least temporarily, where they can be settled? Well, it's about as um, basic as you can get in terms of just the support required. And it, and it sort of encompasses you know, a range of, of meeting needs. But right there at the border, you have you know, we, there are different border entry points, but at any given one, you'll have dozens of staff or volunteers um, who are at tents uh, where there's hot food, where there's tea and coffee and then information. So that is one of the first things people are looking for is one is information just about what options are available to you, who who can offer support, what support are you looking for, but also a Wi-Fi connection so people can communicate back with mm. their family members. We made it. This is where we are. How are you? Just being able to communicate is a lifeline at a time when you're separated from your network and your family members. And so you have staff there at the border providing the physical comfort of a blanket, a hot food, hot tea, coffee, and that critical source of information of here are shelters available to you at this location. Here is safe transportation. So Caritas is also providing transportation to these shelters. Um, and then as people move to wherever they want to go, some people want to keep going west. So some people are looking for transportation to the Romanian border, which we will offer as well, a safe mode of transportation. Um, and, and where Caritas will be on the other side of that border in Romania. But when people go to shelters, then there's a whole other uh, wraparound type of service support. So first and foremost, having a bed and having a shower and having a private room or a shared room for larger families um, and counseling and uh, care for grief and trauma and distress. Mm. And that's where you see mothers being able to have conversations with their children um, just about why they are where they are, um, what might be happening next. Um, we provide cash assistance, especially in an environment where people are on the move. Um, you need that flexibility and that agility to be able to purchase what you need for your family. Every family was able to bring different types of things, uh, but might need certain specific things for their family. So providing cash assistance. Um, and then we're also working with a lot of families in Moldova and elsewhere where residents are taking in refugees. There's an enormous outpouring of generosity. I've just been blown away by the outpouring of generosity across residents in Moldova and elsewhere who are taking in refugees into their homes. A really cold time of year and heat right. is very expensive. And so we're providing uh, incentives, cash incentives to cover heat and food costs for families as well who are taking in refugees. What do you need from us? How can we help? Your voice is so important, your attention on this issue, um, the outpouring of compassion, you feel it, you feel it there. And it's so critical that uh, there is that, that goodwill and that compassion and solidarity. And so support for the organizations that you trust that are on the ground. Um, I, I can speak, of course, for CRS and Caritas. The, the presence is so remarkable. It's unlike any other. It is a network across the region. And in Moldova, we are the only international uh, operating organization because we were working there before. And that trust at the community level allows us to be able to move and adapt and not have to start up operations like, like we're outsiders. I mean, they're very much present already with these communities. So that allows us to do so much. But supporting um, the organizations that you trust and keeping 
that sympathetic and compassionate spotlight on what is truly just an unbelievable, unimaginable, just nightmare scenario for so many families who a month ago never imagined they would be having to navigate these choices and were just living their lives. Right. Here they are not with an enormous amount of uncertainty um, and they just need our, our love and our prayers and our support. We have a list of NGOs on our website Wonderful. for people who are interested in contributing monetarily. You can find that at hearmenowpodcast.org. Caroline Brennan is Emergency Communications Director for Catholic Relief Services. Ms. Brennan, thanks for taking the time to talk with us. Thank you so much. Ann Garrels is a reporter's reporter, legendary in newsrooms across the industry. She's worked for ABC, NBC, and NPR News, where she served as the Moscow correspondent for a good chunk of time, and where I had the great pleasure of working with her. Among many awards Anne has received, one stands out for me. 20 years ago, she received the Courage in Journalism Award from the International Women's Media Foundation. I think Courage is Anne's middle name. In 2016, she published the book Putin Country, A Journey into the Real Russia. She joins us now from her home in Connecticut. Annie, it's so good to see you. And you. There's a lot hanging in the balance. I suppose my question is, how far will Putin go? Well, it just reminds me of being in Chechnya in 94 and again in 2000 when almost exactly the same thing happened in 94 where tanks got stuck. And then finally when Putin became in charge as president, he just raised hmm. everything in his wake. So it's a funny combination of the two. I feel like I've been there before. And the devastation that happened in Chechnya is what we're seeing now writ large in Ukraine. How far he will go if he's willing to negotiate, I'm not sure. I mean, he basically, his position hardened um, since the war started, or even before, just days before, when he basically said, right. Ukraine doesn't exist. I mean, you could understand he was nervous about NATO expansion, although NATO, I mean, NATO was stupid, I, in my view, to even talk about promises eventually to move into Ukraine. But it was not an imminent threat. But Putin has taken it one step further and is now talking about, you know, Ukraine is not a sovereign nation. And it's a double whammy because not only, you know, is the war going on in Ukraine, but what is happening inside Russia Tell is really that. scary. Anybody who dismisses the Kremlin line that it's merely a limited military operation faces 15 years in prison. He's said that anybody who is Western-oriented is scum. And then, you know, clamping down on the Internet and whatever, although it's not been that effective so far because oh. Russians have VPN. And, I mean, many... Russians mm. 
have VPN. I am still able to communicate with friends on Facebook and Messenger, despite the fact that it is allegedly blocked. However, they're going to have to keep paying for that VPN, and they don't have credit cards to do that any longer, or bank accounts to pay Western sources. So that's in jeopardy. You know, from untrained eyes like mine, look at the situation and think this is some uh, longing on his part to return to a sort of Soviet Russia. Oh, it's more than just Soviet. It's it's sort of the the old Russian Empire. I mean, going back to Kievan Rus in 1197 or whatever. Um, he's completely, you know, he's living in the past. I mean, yes, it's part of it is empire. And part of it is, you know, nervousness about, well, he so underestimated what the military could do. He thought that the Ukrainians were going to stand up and say, hallelujah, when he went in. Russian speakers, Ukrainian speakers, for you know, whatever. Right. right. He got it so wrong. Since 2014, they've been looking at what's been going on in Russia. I mean, Ukraine, you know, wasn't, you know, it had its own problems, mega corruption, you name it. But they were moving slowly but surely in a more democratic fashion, right. more open economy. And they looked at Russia and said, we don't want it. Right. We don't want to be like that. It's a remarkable growth since 1989 to see the change. You know, the amazing thing is to see Zelensky, who was kind of an iffy president, to put it mildly. And he is, he's really galvanized the population. 40 million are still, at least, are still there, rallying. He is a master of social media. And, you know, unlike previous conflicts, the use of Telegram and TikTok and Twitter has been, it's been a masterclass in how to build not only solidarity within your country, but to build allegiance around the world. I mean, it's remarkable. It is remarkable. I mean, yes, he, you know, he was a performer, an actor, comedian before. I mean, he knows how to, he knows how to appeal to the public, but He's been remarkably um, steadfast and brave. Uh, we'll see, I mean, nobody real. I mean, what he's doing in the negotiations, you know, what he, what he is willing to negotiate as opposed to the parliament, I mean, and then, and then going to parliament, I mean, you know, it's still a very iffy game. Annie, let's shift gears for a moment. Um, this horrific war has prompted you and some friends to do some humanitarian efforts on your own. Tell, tell us about Assist Ukraine and what you're, what you're doing. Well, I wanted to go back to report, but unfortunately I'm quite sick. So um, the gods got in my way uh, and saved me from myself because my passport was almost expired in addition to everything. So, what was I going to do? And with two friends, also 
in their late 70s um, and remarkably talented, we set up an NGO and in a matter of three weeks, and this NGO is to help Ukrainians inside Ukraine survive and resist the Russians through my contacts in the past and their new contacts we've been remarkably successful in getting in just in three weeks well over a hundred thousand dollars worth of medical supplies flak jackets helmets night vision things that people say they need and specifically not just any medical supplies what doctors in Lviv and Kiev have said they need. That's remarkable uh, work. Congratulations. I'm sort of amazed too, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I'm not surprised. Having worked with you for many years, uh, your heart is big. And as soon as somebody said you're, you have to stay put, you were going to find a way to get involved. And you've chosen a really remarkable way. Ann Garrels, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me and you the best. Thank you, my love. That's Ann Girls, longtime Moscow correspondent for NPR News and the author of the book Putin Country, A Journey into the Real Russia. You'll find a link to Ann's NGO, Assist Ukraine, along with many others on our website, hearmenowpodcast.org. And thanks for being generous. The images from Ukraine are heartbreaking. I think that heartbreak is a healthy response. And like many aid workers there, healthcare professionals who are working there, peacemakers, journalists, it's probably necessary to feel that heartache. You have to, to be fully human. But then you have to get back to work, helping, healing, negotiating, listening, and telling stories with truth and integrity. Like Auden wrote back in 1939, we must love one another or die. Many thanks to my guests this hour, Ina Pashniak, Oris Tolebeck, Alexei Kirka, Annie Gerrels, Caroline Brennan. Thank you all for sharing your stories. Thank you for reaching out to others, for making connections in wartime for being an affirming flame. We began the hour with a Ukrainian lullaby. It tells the story of the moon, a silver-faced protector watching over the children of Ukraine safely tucked in in the villages below. That lullaby is what we want to leave you with. For Mike Drummond, Scott Acord, Melody Fawcett, Victoria Johnson, and all of us, at the Providence Institute for Human Caring. I'm Sean Collins. Thanks for listening. Be well.
Thank you.